Hey everyone, this is Dr. Spider here. Welcome to part one of our Chop Shop Reports special on Egypt. If you like this uh, special episode and our other original reporting and bonus and want access to our bonus material, please uh, toss a fiver in at our Patreon at patreon.com slash chopshopeconomics and enjoy part one of our Egypt special. Helen. I just bring up a question though. Like, Helen, we've had a really, really hard time trying to get you sainted. Like, informally you have a title, but right now the Pope in Rome is holding very, very tightly on to letting you be sainted. Just doesn't want to let be through. So I think we should consider alternative options here because there is a Pope in Egypt, a Coptic Pope. So I'm pretty sure that that the, the Coptic Church also requires that I be dead and like physically not just inside. What if you it, move this to is Giza? A pretty standard rule. What if you move to Giza? Um, that that's my that's my question. If you move to Giza, could you be sainted? Actually, we have. I, ha- I don't know. Here. I, I I think we've got an expert on the subject of Giza here tonight. We do. Um. We have our... Yeah, Ahmed, could you chime in on this? Yes, Ahmed. There's, there's never been anything holy in Giza, just so you know. Like, it, it's impossible. It's just impossible. <sighs> well, okay, well, that that idea is out. But, um... Well, we... I guess we should get to the podcast. We've got a very special episode today of Chop Shop Economics. We have our co-host. It is me, HQ. And we have the well-known... Sainted Helen, and we have a new guest co-host who has an official history degree, and his name is... Hi. (laughs) Valinius. So, are are you Roman or something? Why is the name Valinius? Esoteric reasons. That's all anyone needs to know. Very well. <laughs> so, uh. Yeah. So, what we've got today for our special episode is we've got Ahmed. He's from Egypt, currently residing in Egypt. He's a contributor to um, Cosmonaut, and he's been a guest on multiple podcasts. Pretty great guy. Um,. We're here to talk about, like, Egyptian history and what's currently going on in Egypt. Because, you know, the uh, liberal media isn't covering it very well. I should say that I'm not on Cosmonaut anymore. But um, I did do a couple podcasts for them in an article, I think. I think, yeah, just one. But uh, I do have 
other qualifications other than being Egyptian. Uh, I'm yeah, can you tell us about your um, sociology student? And yeah, but, can you um, tell can you tell us about that and also your organizing background in Egypt with like the with the revolutions that happened? Yeah, the the more relevant qualification I have is that I was in both revolutions in 2011 and 2013. I was a kid though, but that sort of that sort of helps because you know the PTSD is easier to manage when you don't remember a lot of it. But anyway, so. There is a bit of a gap when it comes to Egypt and the media because it gets the sort of the sort of Africa treatment more and more generally in the Middle East treatment where you won't hear news unless it's negative and you won't hear like any kind of nuance. My favorite bugbear for this is when they announce like oh 500 people sentenced to death, but then they don't say the follow up of like all of them appealed and got 15 years instead. It's just the appeal took nine years. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, mm-hmm. so I'm here to talk about why the fuck we have appeals and why the fuck it takes nine years and what the hell is going on. Yeah, tell me um, what the hell is going on in Egypt. So I should start in the beginning. Back in the year 4000 BC, I mean, um. <laughs> so. <laughs> I was actually going to ask you to talk about, like, you know, what Egypt was like before the Sahara dried up. I mean, I figured we could start at the beginning. <laughs> so it it is kind of relevant to start 2000 years ago <laughs> because that's that's about the last time until 1952 that Egypt was under an Egyptian ruler. That's a bit relevant. So I'm I assume most of you are aware of where Egypt is. It's just sort of like, you know, crossroads between Europe, Asia, and Africa, meaning we've been invaded by all three. Um most recently, we were colonized by the British, which, you know, that's not very unique. What is a bit unique, well, not unique, but not normal for British rule, is that we weren't actually a colony per se. We were a quote-unquote protectorate, and uh, I just made a huge load of air quotes, because it was a colony, a settler colony, but not just for Brits. TLDR, we had a lot of rulers over that time that all had to be pre-approved by the British. The last notable one was King Farouk, who a lot of people are revising into being a decent ruler now, but anyway. So in 1952, after losing a major war in 1948 against Israel, with such amazing highlights of competence as buying weapons from <coughs> your enemy and uh, assigning generals who had never been generals before, and uh, ordering an offensive to happen in the middle of uncharted territory with no supply lines. The army wasn't very happy, <laughs> suffice to say. Uh, we didn't lose any land because the British were annoyed that a protectorate of Britain went to war with another protectorate of Britain and lost Britain land. But it's still, you know, popular sentiment wasn't very good. And plus, World War II wasn't very kind to the country, with it becoming the most mined country in the world for a while. By a while, I mean until 2018. Um, and a large proportion of people getting conscripted into an army that they weren't paid to be part of, even though they were promised they'd be paid. You know, just small issues mm-hmm. like that. So what happened was, in 1952, a group of officers in the army, calling themselves the Free Officers as in free from British rule and from colonial rule in general, 
decided to stage a coup. Now, this is going to be a running theme. Coup and revolution are almost synonymous here. Because when the coup started, they expected that things would go sour because there, there were a bunch of British garrisons everywhere. Except the garrisons couldn't leave because when the coup started and tanks started rolling down the streets, people started pouring out and swarmed the British garrison. So it was a revolution that came from a coup. There will be a fun parallel for that later. So at the end of that coup, the free officers deliberate, and they have a problem. They don't know what to do, right? Okay, so King is Yote, the British have left, the garrison surrendered. What now? So they split into three camps. The first camp was under their nominal leader, Muhammad Nagib. He was the, the field marshal of the army at the time. He was some old guy, right? Like, not too old, not too young. Just kind of an old head in the army. Didn't really have any strong beliefs beyond, like, some vague notion <coughs> of Islamic heritage and Arabic heritage. And at the time, the concept of Egypt was a bit nebulous. Like, what the fuck is this place? It's just what, what the British called Egypt at the time. Like, what makes it separate from, say, Palestine, or from Libya, or from Sudan. The other <laughs> camp was some guy named Mouser. This was, this was some colonel Ooh, from, <laughs> this was some colonel from Alexandria. It was like a theater kid no one cared about, who got really popular during that revolution that started. Mainly because he was the one giving all the speeches. Wait, also, and, Ahmed, um, like, when the fuck were you gonna tell me that Nasser, like, was a theater kid? <laughs> Oh, it's a tightly guarded secret. So, uh, this explains so much. It does. Honestly. It really does. <laughs> makes sense to me now. It, just like the theater kid dictatorship. It's all coming together. <laughs> yes. It, it, it morphed into a dorkocracy for a reason. So this theater kid, he has a flair for the dramatic, but he also has a flair for Marxism, which uh, does not endear him to the British. Like they they called him the Arab Hitler the moment he he took it, he came onto the scene so he wasn't even in power yet so like that that's some powerful aura right there the third camp was essentially a they they didn't really have a figurehead but it was just a group of the free officers who thought that the way forward was liberal capitalism. Uh... Now these guys managed to be persuasive enough to get them to, to get everyone to back Nagib, under the idea that like he doesn't have an ideology of his own, so he's the compromise guy. He's also well known because he's the field marshal, like so he's the default pick. So they get him in, and uh, Nasser immediately starts undermining him, <laughs> like right off the bat. So one fun event that tells you all you need to know about early Egypt in this time, there was a riot in a town called Kofr Dawar, which is about analogous to Indianapolis. Like it's it's a town with one industry, and that's it. And they, the workers at the factory there, and I say the factory because look at it on Google Maps, it's literally a factory with housing around it. So they started a riot, and they demand that they have workers' rights. Because under the king, 
there was essentially a single party democracy, right? It was just the weft party. Weft means uh, envoy, right? So you can guess where that name came from. Uh, so the weft party, <coughs> thing, they used to be based for exactly 12 months. Uh, they they spread out of the 1919 revolution, wherein people said, hey, why are we a protectorate? To which the British said, okay, you can have nominal independence, have fun. The Wolf Party were a liberal party, question mark? Uh, they they were a big tent and they controlled almost all the seats in parliament, so basically every party was part of the Wolf Party at that point. The only real opposition to them were fascists, Islamists, and this little group that was becoming a problem in Kofrdor and other places like it, called the Communist Party of Egypt. Nowadays we refer to them as Hattu, which is an acronym but doesn't matter. Little problem with the CPE. Uh, at the time it was almost all foreigners, just people who happened to live in Alexandria. Notable Alexandrians like Rudolf Hess. <laughs> he wasn't in the CPE, but just to give you an idea of how much of a settler <laughs> colony it was. Um, so immediately the free officers are split. So you have the camp that says that they want liberal democracy and capitalism, and they say, okay, CPE is a problem. And they don't trust it because it has communist in the name. Uh, and they assume that because they're foreign, ergo, they are spies for the USSR. Ignoring the fact that most of them are French. <laughs> but anyway. Or Italian. Uh, the Nasser side said, hey, the workers want rights, why don't we give it to them? And then use that to create a workers' party. To which the other few officers replied, You're sounding a little Soviet. So in order to appease both sides, Nagib decides to uh, quash the riot, jail everyone involved in organizing it, exiling the Communist Party, and then granting workers' rights. Uh, yeah, anyway. <laughs> so that, that's the kind of flavor you're dealing with. So... First thing they do is they try to do a bunch of literacy drives. They try to industrialize the country because at the time it had like two industrial areas total, one of which made cotton and the other of which made cotton. Uh, the country only had one export, which was cotton, and that was a, there was one rail line whose job was to move cotton. <laughs> Aside from the settler colony places like Cairo and Alexandria and Port Said and Suez, like. It was just extractive, purely. And that's why literacy was around 5-10%. Mm, Poverty, mm, around 90-ish percent. You know, not a great time. Essentially, if you lived outside of the cities, you were living in squalor and had no idea what a light bulb was. If you're living in the cities and weren't foreign, you were either a bureaucrat who made billions, or you were a slave, essentially. Um... Side fun fact, the British entered Egypt in 1882 under the auspices of removing slavery, then tripled the amount of slaves so that they could expand the canal. Sounds like them. <laughs> but, yeah. Sounds pretty, yeah, that sounds pretty British. Yep. So speaking of British things, right after uh, Naguib starts to, you know, heat up a little bit, the British go over and send envoys to the Muslim Brotherhood, who at the time existed in Ismailia which is in the canal zone. It's right right between the two canal zone cities. It is essentially Rhode Island, if if you count the canal zone cities as like Boston and like New York ish. Like it's just somewhere in the middle. It's it's a pretty place. It's got a lot of Islamists at the time, but it's a pretty place. 
the Brotherhood are sort of the antagonist of the story. They start up in the 20s. Uh, initially, the, the UK is afraid of them because Islamists are spooky. Uh, but then they realize that they have more in common with their goals than meets the eye. Namely, that the Islamists' main thing is to stop socialism from happening, because they consider it to be atheism and thus godless. So, in the same way that evangelicals are co-opted to become completely neocons in, uh, in the West, Islamists are essentially neocons here. Though you do have some things like Islamist labor or Islamic labor, which is weird, but anyway, they don't matter. So the Brotherhood are, they act as sort of, not an arm of MI6, but they're cozy. They have, they have issues with each other at points, like they, they assassinate a bunch of left people, including the Prime Minister at one point, uh, but otherwise, they help in sowing chaos whenever it's needed. So they start sowing chaos in the Canal Zone, which is a problem because at the time the Canal Zone was still under British occupation. Right after that, Nasser has an attempt on his life by a Brotherhood member. So then there are questions in the free officers, how did anyone get that close to Nasser though? So they immediately suspect Naguib because he, he wanted to bring the Brotherhood in. So they eat Naguib and they send him into exile where he would die in 1984. Fitting year. Uh, he was never relevant again, and he was actually taken out of the history curriculum until 2008. He, he essentially ruled for a year and a half. So then comes Nasser. He takes over in 53, 54. Most people just chalk it up as 53 for the sake of it. And the first thing he does is bring the Brotherhood into the government. Main reason is so that he can just sort of get the rural areas on uh, you know, on his side, because a lot of them, the only government that exists is the Brotherhood. They have mutual aid networks. These networks, by the way, still a vital thing up until Mubarak. And I'll get back to mm-hmm. that. So keep in mind, like, rural equals Islamist for a long time, until Nasser comes in, and he turns pretty much the entire country socialist. <laughs> Thank you. Nasserism is like Peronism in that you can ask ten people and get ten different answers as to what it is, but it is essentially when the government does stuff, unironically. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, it, it covers the gamut of like when the government deports people to when the government commits genocide to when the government makes bread. But the main core tenets of Nasserism were that to define Egypt is to define it as being Arab and African. And sort of Muslim, but also Christian. But crucially, as the leader of all of these. And fuck everyone else. So that started up by kicking up, lighting fires onto the British and the French, starting Arab liberation movements all over the place. Like, Nasser immediately goes on a world tour that culminates in him forming the non-aligned movement and funding things like the Cuban Revolution. <laughs> Like, if you ever wonder why so many mad EAKs exist in the world, yeah. Um, so the the big issue, though, comes when he nationalizes the everything. <laughs> Pretty much every company in the country, aside from a handful, were owned by foreign entities. 
So he starts nationalizing everything. He bans landlords. He bans the ownership of farmland larger than, I think, 10 fadans, which is the only non-metric unit we use for reasons unknown. Um, mm-hmm. Which is exactly 0.420 hectares. It's a fun fact. And people do grow weed in nice. fadans. <laughs> um, so obviously this this spooks a lot of the Europeans because they just lost all their shit for nothing uh, especially because one of the companies he nationalized this is the Suez Canal Company which France is still salty over and they still have the Suez Canal Company <laughs> but the saltiest over this were the British because that meant that they no longer controlled the area they still had a garrison in because the Suez Canal Company to this day owns all the land on either side of the canal, including the cities. So this, this really pisses them off. So in 1956, the British declare war alongside France and Israel. Israel just wanted to tag along. They wanted to get the uh, Sinai Peninsula if they could. So the British send their garrisons out, saunter out, and it's war. The French come in, they send marines and all that. And immediately... The U.S. is not pleased because Egypt sinks a bunch of ships into the canal to shut it down. Because if we can't have it, you can't have mm-hmm. it either. Fuck you. So now the, there's a bit of historiographical um, argument around how to frame this. So either you see it as the U.S. telling the U.K. and France to fuck off so that trade can resume and thus ending the war. Or you see it as the UK and France going in with the objective of retaining the canal and failing. In either case, the result is that the canal is Egyptian by 1957, and Nasser is now a thorn in the side of the entirety of Europe. So by this point, there starts to be an exodus of foreigners, right? And this covers everything. People in the Communist Party who were already spooked by the uh, arrests after Kofi the War. Uh, people who... Uh, were worried about their shit getting nationalized. There's also an exodus of Christians because they're worried about the Brotherhood being part of the governing coalition. Uh, and then, of course, Jews start to run. And fast. Because Israel offers them a right of return. And if you can get out, do it. Especially because everyone in the country at this point is convinced that you're just about to get completely nuked. <laughs> just gone. But that doesn't happen. Uh, instead, both Khrushchev and Eisenhower visit, and they both wanna wanna get Egypt into their Cold War sphere, mainly because of the canal, but also because you've got this like rapidly industrializing country that has enough food to feed an entire continent if it wants to. But then things don't go as planned for either side, really. Uh, Nasser starts the Arab Socialist Union, which is which becomes like the the main workers' party. It also becomes the only union in the country. Uh, so all the workers are happy because mm-hmm. now they're all part of the government. The Brotherhood aren't happy because they're not part of the government anymore. And the left party is just sitting there like, um, so what now? Meanwhile, the remaining aristocrats who used to be part of the bureaucracy under the king are either gone or just trying to work within the Nasser's bureaucracy. So it's this hodgepodge of people who have no idea what they're doing uh, workers who got conscripted in, people from the army who have some idea of how logistics work, and like monarchy era bureaucrats trying to figure out how to not get guillotined. Um, so this all leads to a very dysfunctional kind of socialism that only sort of works, 
but that also accrues a lot of debt because as soon as the uh, nationalized companies accept that they've been nationalized, they start accruing debt in Egypt. Because the British and the French won't let companies just get nationalized, right? So they demand mm-hmm. that, that they get payment. Uh, this then leads Eisenhower and later JFK to keep sending money over, either to facilitate payments or to facilitate trying to bring Egypt into the, into NATO. Meanwhile, Khrushchev says, hey, I'm not going to give you money. I'm going to give you a dam so you can have energy independence. To which Nasser says, great, I can commit genocide now. So, uh, they build the dam on the first cataract, which floods the entirety of Nubia, and uh, kills mm, five to 50,000 people. If you feel conflicted about Nasser now, yeah, welcome to being Egyptian. There are even Nubians who are conflicted about him. Because, on one hand, electrification, literacy, healthcare, education, nice. On the other hand, what the fuck, dude? So the ones that survived yeah. uh, became the maintenance crews for the dam, uh, which was uh, built up to spec with Soviet engineering. By that I mean had no safety standards. Uh, much love to the Soviets, especially under Khrushchev, but goddamn it, just shielding, please. So, you know, all that coupled with losing their land and not getting it back is pretty terrible. Bear in mind, this whole time, we haven't even left 1960. <laughs> so a lot of things happen very, very fast. Uh, by 61, he's already finalized the 1958 treaty to make Sudan a country, which was entirely due to racism. Just, I, I don't want to deal with this. Uh, which is also why the Hawaii Ben Shalatin thing isn't actually a real dispute. Like, it's, it's a dispute on paper. There's a border right there with, like, a mutual cargo station. Like, it's, it's not contested. Anyway, the border was not drawn in 1899 or 1901 or 1902. I just want to get that out there. But then he annexes North Yemen and Syria. That's kind of misleading because there were referenda. Uh, the referenda are just really suspicious in that out of like 12 million voters, a hundred-ish voted no. But at the same time, he was popular enough that that's kind of plausible. Anyway, so you've got this guy who's essentially everyone's daddy now. Uh, he's, he's the liberator of the Arab world and of much of Africa. He's BFF, so Kwame Nkrumah, Julius Nyerere, Che Guevara, like, Tito, if you ever want relationship goals, look at how Nasser and Tito looked at each other. (laughs) (laughs) Um, So, you know, what could go wrong, right? Uh, So in 1967, Israel declares war unexpectedly at, like, the peak of Egypt's economic power, but not the peak of its military power, because they kind of let the army, you know, decay a little bit. Plus, at the time, the army was being restructured. This this will be very important later. Nasser thought the army was going to be the basis of the party, right? Like, he, he didn't want to get the party from university students along, because he thought that that way, even though university became free, it would still be selective. Uh, instead, he wanted to do conscription and have the army limit officer roles to conscripts and then have officer roles have mandatory retirement at 55. So everyone from the field marshal down had to be replaced periodically with conscripts. 
and made it so that conscription almost always favored the poor, and then gave a lot of financial incentives to being a conscript. So it was essentially like a catapult to the middle class. This also meant that there was like straight up patronage, right? Like if you if you wanted to get out of poverty, you just joined the army. Like you you did everything you could to get conscripted. Um, or you married into the army, or anything like that. That's not to say it's a military dictatorship, because the military isn't a military by this point. Like, it's starting to form into a sort of shadow government, but it'll fully form into that later. So 1967 happens, and B-52s just blanket the sky in Cairo. Cairo at the time wasn't very big. For the record, like it's, it's like one of the top five largest megalopoli in the world now, but it wasn't that at the time. The entirety of Egypt had like 15 million people at the time, like 20 million at the highest estimate. Cairo was just two mm-hmm. little downtowns with a bunch of factories around them, and that just got flattened. Um, which is also why now we have a gigantic air defense network because those scars have never healed. <laughs> Uh, more people died committing suicide after 67 than died because of the war. So, 67 is a disaster. Sinai is taken over by Israel and becomes a settler colony. The canal shuts down forever, essentially. It, it stays shut down until 1979. Um, and the, the entirety of the industrialization and electrification that happened around Cairo at the time is just erased. Post-67 Egypt is sad as shit, and it only gets sadder when in 1970 Nasser dies. His death is controversial, uh, but I won't get into that. Suffice to say, he had a rotating uh, vice president system so that no one would, would feel too comfortable, and no one would, you know, assume that they would get into power. And at the time, it was a guy named Anwar Sadat. Sadat was one of the guys who wanted capitalism before. Uh, so, as soon as he takes over, the head of the Arab Socialist Union and the guy who was vice president like a half dozen times, Ali Sabri, tries to get him to go away. And then when that fails, he tries to co-opt him. And then when that fails, he gets exiled. <laughs> and the Arab Socialist Union just sits there like, huh. Well, socialism was fun. And it uh, it becomes the National Democratic Party seven years later. In the interim, uh, shit goes down. So Sadat, he he brings the Brotherhood back into the fold. He calls it the policy of openness. He unnationalizes everything, like privatizes things that weren't even privatized before under the king. Stuff like water, sewage, all that. Privatize it all. Uh, he starts getting IMF loans and starts trying to rebuild uh-huh. from the remnants of 67. To an extent, this works, until it creates a class of oligarchs. Uh, and most of the oligarchs are people who are close to him, like people who are married into his family, his neighbors, people from his governorate, stuff like that. Like it's, it's pretty bad. But the thing is, he's Nasser at the time, he was closer to the USSR than the US, but he wasn't part of either sphere. It was the non-line movement to him. Uh, Fun little side note, when Eisenhower sent his biggest aid package to Egypt ever, and the largest until 1979 in Egypt's history, Nasser spent it on building a penis. 
Google the Cairo Tower. Uh, so that, that's well, about the level he's, he's at. You know, honestly, finally we're hearing some good history happening to Egypt. You know? <laughs> yeah. it's, it's not... It's not often that you get to the good part this early, but <laughs> I'm really happy that you guys have a giant penis now. Yes, it, it's, it's glorious. It got a light upgrade, like, last year. Oh, so now it's a very bright <laughs> giant penis. Oh, yeah. Exactly. <laughs> People weren't paying enough attention to it. Um. Uh, it also has strobe lights, which is amusing. Uh, it can also shoot fireworks out the tip. Why? <laughs> are there are there sharks with laser beams uh, and at the top of it? Yes. So, uh, so dicks aside. So Sadat isn't like that at all. Like he 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 tells the Soviets to go fuck themselves. Uh, funny thing, before he does that, he builds a friendship monument next to the dam, where he has like uh, Brezhnev's face next to his. And it, it's really awkward. It's it's really nice looking. Like it, I've been there. I went there um, uh, late 2019. It was really nice. But also, why is his face on there? <laughs> anyway, yeah, he had nothing to do with the dam. So this is part of the issue, right? So that tries to co-opt the Nasserist state, and it's the echoes of it that that really stop a famine from happening. Because there's still free college. There's still uh, free primary education, there's still literacy drives, there's still free healthcare. And uh, he can't pay for any of it. Because before it just wasn't commodified. Like, it was just, whatever, just, just do it. You you provide healthcare for the sake of your country. Okay. Whereas now, like, doctors want wages. You know, me- meager wages, but <laughs> wages. Um, so he gets closer to the U.S. because they can give him money. But then he gets closer to the USSR for a little bit because they can give him scuds. And another fun fact, he was the first country to use scuds literally the month they were made. Just, hey, can I have these? Nice, I'm gonna f- fight Israel with them now. So, uh, so that's a big point, right? Wait, what like, are scuds up until, up until, like, three years into his reign, there was nothing positive. <laughs> like... Uh, the policy of openness led to more terror attacks. The uh, privatization led to mass poverty and the creation of an oligarch class. And like the only thing keeping people alive, like I said, was the echoes of the Nasserist state. And by this point, the bureaucrats just had no idea what the fuck they were doing anymore. He then went for his two key policy proposals. The first was to end the free officers in the Arab Socialist Union and move toward a police state. Which worked? Mm-hmm. Question mark. Like it, it made the army more separate. Um, they no longer had a budget, so they they started making their own factories, which is when they start being just a country on their own. Um, then the second policy is I'm going to get Sinai back. So he works with the USSR, gets a bunch of weapons, works with Iran or then Persia to get a bunch of oil. Uh, works with the US to get a bunch of ammo. And funnily enough, so Israel had a thing called the Bar-Lev line, which is the biggest line of fortifications post-World War II up until that point. I think it might even be, like, to this day. Um, and it had a key feature. All of the buildings were made of sandstone, and they had pipes in them with napalm. 
So if you shoot the sandstone, uh, the entire canal will just light on fire, essentially. Mm -hmm. So there was this guy, <laughs> uh, Be'i Zaki Yusuf. He was like a Coptic transcript. He didn't get recognition for this for, for the longest time. Like It took until the Second Revolution for them to give a shit about his existence. He walked in on like an officer's meeting with, with Sadat, discussing the Barlev line. And they're like, how the fuck do we deal with this? And he says, oh, sandstone? Just use a water hose. It'll just turn to mud. So, uh, problem, they need pumps. So they go to the Russians, and the Russians say, we will not give you pumps, because that's sus as fuck. So they go to East Germany, and they, they disagree. So their own voice go from East Berlin to West Berlin, and ask West Germany for water pumps. And they say, oh, we have tall buildings now, so we need high water pumps. Like, high-pressure pumps. So West Germany sends high-pressure pumps over. And haha, pump go burr. They go through the Barlev line. They uh, cross into Sinai, and they run out of ammo. <laughs> Crucially, Israel doesn't know they ran out of mm -hmm. ammo. So within about uh, two weeks of fighting... Uh, two weeks, which were hell, by the way, because the war started on Yom Kippur, so the Israelis were fasting, which Israel is very mad about. What they neglect to say is that it started on the 10th of Ramadan, so the Egyptians were fasting the whole way through. <laughs> um, so they run out of ammo, they're fasting, they're sick of the shit, and they just hunker down, right? They just build a bunch of fortifications, bring tanks over on, like, pontoons, and just wait uh, by this point, the U.S. was trying to, to get this shit over with because the Arabs had started the oil crisis in solidarity. But uh, speaking of solidarity or lack thereof, in order to facilitate the surprise attack, Egypt had a network of, of double agents who kept telling Israel that the surprise attack was coming from Syria, but then telling Syria that the attack was legit. <laughs> so they just hung Syria out to dry. Uh, which was great. Like, the Golan is entirely Sadat's fault. So, um, so the war just kind of ends within two or three weeks. By that point, it's just a stalemate. Nobody wants to move anymore. There are scattered commandos along Israel. Some of them get all the way, like, to Eilat and almost to Tel Aviv, but they're just stuck there behind enemy lines. Um, and then they, they, they call a truce, right? And they say, okay, well, we're just going to let Jimmy Carter handle this. <laughs> Fuck it. And notice the time scale, by the way. Like, before, it took a while to get from 52 to 60, and I just breezed from 73 to, like, 78. <laughs> just nothing mm -hmm. happened. Except in 1977 <laughs> came the bread riots. So in order to help fund the war... Sadat finally budged and ended food subsidies. He would later learn that this was a bad idea, because there were riots all over the country, everywhere. And then the uh, Arab Socialist Union collapses, uh, it becomes the National Democratic Party, and from the corpse of it springs the Tagamwa Party, or the National Progressive Unionist Party. They're led by a guy named Khaled Mohideen, who's... Like one of the senior free officers who was one of the, the authors of its of the Arab Socialist Union's program, right? So this is the first real fissure in the politics, where the the state finally admits, okay, we're not socialist anymore. Get over your get over yourselves. 
They let Tagamo enter Parliament with one token MP who gets arrested like every other week. And <laughs> they let the Brotherhood have more than a few token MPs. But then they allow a party to, to form called the Liberal Party, which we later found out was entirely just, like, National Democratic Party spooks. <laughs> they existed purely to provide, like, a smokescreen, essentially. And I mean, they, they never proposed a single law. So they didn't do a very good job. Uh, also, like, one of their it, MPs that's just never so went transparent. There. Yeah, like, one of their MPs just never went to parliament ever. That's just, just this is how the yeah. That sounds rise. like a good job, though. I'm not gonna lie. <laughs> yeah. Like Helen, that sounds like a D and D character you would play. <laughs> yeah. Oh, I'm actually a member of Parliament. You're 400 miles away from the capital right now, and Parliament is in session. Yeah, it's kind of like a thing. <laughs> so, the Red Riots really don't go well, and the initial reaction is, hey, just jail them all. Uh, but then, um, uh, Zakaria Mohideen who is actually Fayad Mohideen's cousin, just a fun fact. He, he, he tortured his cousin. Um, he was the head of what would become the SS. Yeah, yeah, their name was the SS. Uh, State Security. So, the, the SS essentially told Sadat, like, if you, if you jail everyone, uh, this won't go well, because we don't have enough jails. <laughs> Literally, just that's mm -hmm. the problem. It's not the concept of jailing everyone. It's, we don't have enough jails. Um, so instead, he, he rolls it back. He only jails the people in the Tagama party, because obviously they're behind this, not the bread riots. Uh, you know, not the fact that we remove bread subsidies and people are worried that they might die. No, no, it's the new party that just started existing. So they start jailing them. They start torturing them and shit, you know, fun stuff. But then they say, okay, fine, bread, bread subsidies are back. Fuck it. You can have those. We'll go bankrupt. It's fine. Uh, then, by 1978, they have the Camp David Accords ready. Essentially, what the Camp David Accords said were, one, Israel will give back Sinai. Except, you know, a little town. They'll, they'll keep that until the 80s. Uh, two, Egypt won't be able to put troops in Sinai until the treaty ends in 2008. Uh, some parts of it got extended, but either way. Three, every single time the U.S. sends a dollar to Israel, it has to send the same to Egypt, which is why Congress keeps adding to our defense uh, aid. And fun fact, if you look at the uh, American Chamber of Commerce's um, uh, website here, they keep complaining that the army doesn't spend the U.S. aid it gets, it just keeps it. Huh. Which, oh. which is a power move, and I respect that. What 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 is happening with that money? They That's keep, interesting. They keep demanding that it increase, as Camp David said, with with the amount that the, that Israel gets. But they just don't spend it. <laughs> um, is there just like a giant pile of U.S. dollars sitting on some military base? Wait, 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 wait. Like, here's my thesis. There's a there's a dragon that the that has been the patron of Egypt's military this entire time, but it's sold a man has been to sit on a pile and of it's treasure. Satisfied with American dollars? I guess that's yeah, a that's cheap dragon. 
Hey, hey, back then, the gold standard had only just been removed. You know, news travels slow. Uh, funny thing, Egypt still had the gold standard. <laughs> Until, like, 1980 something. It just didn't matter because the pound was worthless. <laughs> um, and they didn't have any gold. Like, if you went there and exchanged it for gold, they'd just tell you to go away. Um, so... The, the most important part of Camp David, though, was that it stipulated that Egypt had to become a major non-NATO ally by force, and uh, that it had to privatize even more of the economy oh boy. and remove most subsidies. Neoliberalism. So obviously he... Yes. So obviously Sadat was like, okay, I'll remove the subsidies, but not food. Okay, we, we just went over this. <laughs> I'm not removing food subsidies, yeah. that's final. Everything else, they can... They cannot have fuel, they cannot have heat, they cannot have water. Food, though? They can keep that. So, the accords get ratified, and immediately the Islamists, who are sort of in the government, but not really, like they're just token uh, Islamists there, get really antsy. Because we become the first country to acknowledge Israel's existence and normalize relations. We did it before it was cool. But also because we stabbed Syria in the back, which, uh, you know, isn't very cool. And also because we just accepted that Palestine is just lost forever. Like, that was part of it, just to acknowledge that this whole place was Israel. Funny thing, though, the, the one thing that I respect about Sadat with the Camp David Accords, he never once referred to Israel as Israel. He always referred to it as the Zionist entity. <laughs> which, <laughs> wow, that's basic. That, that is pretty cool. <laughs> Otherwise, he was a complete piece of shit. So, uh, fast forward two years. He decides that he's getting old. He he needs help. So he appoints a vice president. And he picks this guy, this Air Force ace, Hosni Mubarak. Uh, his name might sound familiar. And Mubarak is fine. Like He gets along great with, uh, with the police. He doesn't get along with the army because nobody likes the Air Force. And also because he's kind of annoying. Uh, but he is friends with the field marshal, Tontawi. He's also going to be important. Uh, people who remember 2011, that name might be familiar. So, this next bit is a bit controversial as well, but I'll just lay out the facts. There's a military celebration for the anniversary of the war in 1981. Uh, Mubarak... In his capacity as VP, tells the presidential guard, the Republican guard, to go on vacation. He says, you know, this is a military parade, like, this is the safest place in the country right now. Just, just go. Uh, so they do. They, they just leave the, um, the army doing the parade there. And, uh, well, the president gets assassinated, as do all of Mubarak's enemies, and none of his allies get assassinated. Uh, he also gets shot in the hand, but the wound heals, like, the next day. Why so does Mubarak, Mubarak is Wolverine. Wait, why does Mubarak sound so much like a player character that St. Helen would play in D&D? <laughs> why, why do you guys think that I am just a politician in waiting? <laughs> <laughs> because that's what you do in D&D. Look. <laughs> we, we, need to, we need to talk about Egypt here and less, less about my Machiavellian schemes. 
So what you're saying is that our military guard should go on vacation. Yes. <laughs> so anyway, so so that that happens, uh, everyone's kind of in shock, um, and the new president is Mubarak. No, actually, it's a guy named Sufi Abu Talib who was in power for like eight days. Uh, he never mattered anymore. Mm. Right after that, so he takes over. Then Mubarak is like, "Yeah, no, go away, nerd." Uh, because at the time, it, the order of succession was president, vice president, head of the party. Uh, and Sufi Abu Talib was the head of the party and head of the Senate. So, like, they assumed that Mubarak was injured and was unable to be president. Which is why the bandages came off, like, instantly. It's like, oh, my hand. Oh, you can't be president, you're injured. Oh, my hand's fine. Guys, I've never felt better. Um, <laughs> so then Mubarak takes power. And is actually pretty decent. Uh, he like starts a whole bunch of infrastructure projects, creates a sort of new deal where he privatizes even more. He makes oligarchs even richer, but he does so through construction. So you get like new highways, including the sixth of October bridge. Google it. It's way too tall. <laughs> it's terrifying. Um, shit like that. It's also the only highway that goes through a city. Which is abomination. Just a complete abomination. I hate American urban planning. But anyway, so he also creates a bunch of new factories, you know, starts doing a new thing, which is he starts building new cities. Uh, Nasser had planned to do that, but just to ignore that. Uh, he also brings out an olive branch to the army. In that he, he keeps Tontawi as field marshal and then says, you know this thing where there's a mandatory retirement age? Yeah, that's gone. And he just keeps the same leadership and power. And creates the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces. Under Nasser, this existed as a sort of parliament for the army. But then under Mubarak, it just became, like, the eight dudes he likes. Um, so things are fine until 1985, when... Uh, a bit of a preface. As a show of democracy, he held a referendum over whether he should be president in 1981, and his term was to end in 1984. But then he said, you know, make it 85, you know, the president shouldn't be four years, it should be five. Uh, so then 1985 rolls around, and he's like, yeah, there's no need for a referendum, we people love me. That's when alarm bells start ringing. <laughs> uh, especially in the U.S., who were like, hey, this, this Mubarak guy is really good, neoliberal, I like it. Uh, but... Pity about not holding elections. So he stops doing any of the infrastructure projects because he realizes that he's pretty set in power. And the next few years are just decay, just constant decay. Nasser's institutions are still a thing, though. Like free college, free healthcare, free school, still a thing. They're just decaying. So, like, all the schools are overcrowded, the hospitals don't have equipment and medicine anymore. The factories are decaying. <laughs> like you can find pictures of like, wait, steel wait. factories. Wait, wait. Actually, I feel like a good representation of this is. Can you talk about that nuclear power plant? You know the one. Yes. <laughs> so under Nasser, they made a power plant called uh, ETRR one, which is uh, I think like uh, Egypt Technical Research Reactor one. <laughs> so uh they put it in a place called Inshals, which is like a rural town in Sharia, which is they put it in a place 
where it's far enough away from Cairo that if it blows up, it's fine. <laughs> Just a few thousand people will die, whatever. So, uh, that reactor under NOSA was pristine, right? It was great. Around the, around Sadat's time, they decommissioned it because they weren't doing research anymore on the nukes we definitely never tried to make. <laughs> and the nukes uh, that you definitely don't missiles. have. No, I don't think we do, honestly, but we do have oh, ballistic missiles. <laughs> just, just, just for research. Peaceful purpose. So, uh, fun fact, North Korea's, North Korea's Hwasong 7s oh. were made here. <laughs> Wait, actually, I have a proposal for an upgrade on the Egyptian tower penis. What if it shoots, shoots cruise missiles out of it? stuff is just decaying and this this research nuclear reactor they thought that when they decommissioned that they took out the nuclear material but they didn't <laughs> around like 2016 they did an audit and found that the reactor was still uh, paying power bills they thought it was just like a, an abnormally power hungry town nearby uh, but no no the reactor was still on and it was leaking nuclear material and hey so that's why Northeast Cairo has so many cases of cancer. Huh. Oops. So yeah, that that's about wow. the Wow. That's like... Uh, yeah, that's bad. It's back on now, and it's fine, and it, it has shielding now. It didn't before, because they, they... Like, some people went into the reactor and took the shielding to sell for parts. Like it, it works Egypt, and so that's Egypt as well. It's essentially what people fear monger about Venezuela. <laughs> It wasn't fun. So, issues start to crop up when, after the Gulf War, the U.S. tries to rehabilitate Mubarak's image. Like, they, they give him, like, CBS interviews and all that shit. And they tell him to hold elections, but no one will run against him, so they're just referenda. But the results aren't great. So he wins, right? As far as we can tell. But the election results, uh, they read 100% with 100% turnout. We're very patriotic. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but then later it comes out that the results are actually closer to he got 60% of the vote, uh, which is worrying. So that that's in 1992-93. In 1997, a terrorist attack happens in Luxor and over 100 tourists die. They just get mowed down by some Islamists. Uh, unrelated fun fact, just, uh, you know, completely unrelated. Uh, this was the same group that had killed Sadat, and this was their second operation after the operation that killed Sadat. So anyway, he uses this as a pretext to uh, enact martial law for six months. Uh, those six months ended in 2013. And this was uh, 1997, so... Yeah. So starting from what is it with Mubarak and not having any sense of subtlety at all? No, not at all. Oh, uh, after that too, they just suspended the opposition parties and uh, jailed almost everyone in Tagamo. Uh, so, oh, also I, I forgot to mention this: the bread riots also spawned a new communist party, uh, which wasn't made up of expats, so that's nice. <laughs> and they were essentially just completely 
irrelevant, right? Like imagine, imagine a communist party in any Western country. That's about the, the scale they okay. were on. It was mostly students. This concludes part one of our Chop Shop Report special on Egypt. Tune in on SoundCloud for part two. And if you enjoyed this original reporting, are interested in other bonus material, access to our Discord server, and more, stop on by our Patreon and throw in a fiver at patreon.com chopshopeconomics. Thank you for listening, and keep an eye out for part two.